Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Before we begin, we're happy to announce that we have our first sponsor, Isle of Books in Bozeman, Montana. If you are interested in purchasing either of the books we discuss in this episode, or any books at all, please consider visiting the Isle of Books website at isleofbooksshop.com. Also, we now have a donation button on our website, so if you're interested in supporting our program, please visit breakfastinmontana.com and find the donate button. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. We're uh, going to talk about uh, two books today. Uh, the first one is called Putting on the Dog, and it's a book by our current poet laureate of Montana, Melissa Kwasny. One of our two poet laureates. Yes, Mandy Smoker brought us this also a poet laureate and this and the second book uh pretty shield medicine woman of the crows by frank b linderman and i think yeah. we should add that the uh, subtitle of putting on the dog is the animal origins of what we wear ah yes so this is a fascinating book both of us are huge fans of melissa's poetry but this is a narrative and she did a huge amount of research exploring a lot of the processes that go into developing and making clothes. Right. So there's chapters on, you know, feathers, pearls, um, silk, and wool. Leather. Leather was a good chapter. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. She went to, didn't she go to Japan for the silk chapter yeah. and really traveled all over the what world for some of this stuff? For the I think it was for leather, wasn't it? Or leather, yeah. Anyway, tons of research and visited some fascinating people like a mink farmer in the, the Netherlands, I think it was. No, it was in Denmark, wasn't it? Denmark, yes. And, you know, you, you pointed out something that I hadn't really noticed, but um, despite her her being a poet, the, the narrative is pretty straightforward in this book. And... Um, I thought that was interesting kind of as a parallel to the Linderman book because uh, his book also is pretty, uh, pretty straightforward as far as just allowing Pretty Shield to tell her story. And she has a pretty fascinating story. Yes. Um, like she became a medicine woman late, right? Yeah, right. And uh, I don't think she was very conversant in english he always talks about her pigeon yeah um, he's got an so, interpreter there right so there's an interpreter involved a translator um, but he pretty much lets her talk and then sort of transcribes it into english um that's an interesting approach yeah 
So uh, we're very curious. We have a lot of questions about putting putting on the dog. First of all, I want I was curious about um, you know everyone knows this phrase. Did you did you actually um, explore the <laughs> the uh, origin of that phrase? Actually, um, it's one of the only things that the press asked me to do. Um, one of one of the <laughs> limitations is that they wanted this as a title um and and i was i wasn't exactly happy with it um what was your title hmm what was your title i didn't have a title yet i i don't like to have a title until i'm done writing a book um but i it grew on me um i started thinking about um you know it's the trouble with the title is for people that are younger than my grandparents, uh, they'd never heard of that phrase, putting on the dog, which means, of course, putting on fancy clothes, putting on the Ritz. Um, and when I started thinking about it after I was writing the book and I was thinking about, well, people actually did put on the dog and they put on the buffalo and they put on the geese and um, they they used animals to clothe themselves and in in actuality, people um, who were dressing up, getting very, um, you know, expensive clothing, that usually was something that came from animals because it's so precious, you know, that something has to lose its life and it goes through so many steps of manufacture, like mink. You know, putting on a mink is really putting on um, the Ritz, you know, putting on something very expensive. So... As I did more research in the book, the, the title made sense. Mm -hmm. We did put the subtitle on there um, for people who, oh, I have no idea what putting on the dog means. Um, so the animal origins of what we wear. Tell, tell us what inspired you to write this book, because it's pretty much, uh, your, this is your first nonfiction book, right? Except for essays and stuff, but mm -hmm. what, what inspired it? Well, this is a good poet story. Um, <laughs> most of my work, um, as you guys know, most of my uh, six books of poetry um, have some kind of focus toward the natural world and, um, and the relationship between humans and non-human forms of life. I've always been interested in that, uh, in the history of it. Um, reading Novellus in Montana, I was uh, interested in how our, our romantic ideas about nature, how they came about. Um, so Novalis and the German romantics, um, I was doing a lot of reading about that. What forms our idea of, uh, of nature and of our place in it? And so that's been a common theme through most of my work, I wrote a book of essays called Earth Recitals, where I was investigating the natural image in art and in poetry. And a poet at, um, in Texas, in San Antonio, Barbara Rass, was, she had this great idea for a book. Um, and she said, no one's ever written a book about the ways the animals have given human beings clothing, have provided for cl clothing for 
people. And she had this idea that it would be called putting on the dog and that somebody should do it, but she didn't know who. And just at that time, my book Earth Recitals came across her desk. She started reading it and said, this is, this is the person, this is the person who's going to write this book. So I get a call in Montana out of the blue saying, um, we'll give you this advance. Wow. Um, we'll give you a $25,000 advance. Um, we want you to write this book. You can write it any way you want to. So first of all, I'm a poet. No one ever calls you up and offers you $25,000 for anything. Right. <laughs> um, and and it sounds like a huge amount of money, right? Um, so so I was interested um, when I heard I could do anything I wanted. That that was really interesting, and the idea of working with um, thinking about animals and the human relationship to the animals that provide clothing to us that was right down my alley. So that's awesome. So. It, I didn't say yes right away because I was, like most poets, you have your projects that you're working on. That you're, um, so I thought I could do both. But because the learning curve was so steep for me, I didn't, like most people, I hadn't really given a thought about where my clothing comes from. You know, I think about where my food comes from. And more and more I think about that. But I hadn't thought about my sweater or, um, or my down coat, for instance. And so I had to do a lot of work. I had to do a lot of research and I did a lot of traveling. And pretty much in the second year, poetry fell by the wayside. <laughs> and, um, and I spent five years traveling and doing research wow. for this book. Can I ask a follow-up there? Mm -hmm. That's a great story, by the way. Yeah. It's an awesome story. Um, but when they said you could do it any way you wanted, I'm curious, did it occur to you to write a poem? Like a long, <laughs> like I think of you as a poet. So like, did they tell you it had to be? Uh, prose. They, they not only told me, they did say it had to be prose. Okay. Um, I had an editor who every time I would try to slip, um, in fact, um, I, I had all these quotes from all these poets that I love all the way through. And um, here's a small story. Um, the, the chapter on wool, uh, I wanted to use the Blake quote that I use, um, little lamb who made the, no, who made the, um, which made total sense to me in, in thinking about breeding, like who makes the sheep? Um, the sheep has been domesticated for 10,000 years. The sheep that we see now, we, we kind of made them. Right. And so, um, so thinking about that, but no, no Blake, we're taking Blake out. <laughs> they wanted a book for the general reader. And so every time I'd slip Blake in or I'd slip Oppen in or I'd slip, you know, HD in, that would be the thing that would be highlighted on my, my editing. That's really fascinating because we were both commenting earlier about how, in a way, it almost didn't feel like you wrote this book because it <laughs> doesn't have... It's a different poetic. voice. It's a different voice. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. When we discussed this before the episode, 
I mentioned to you, one of my questions would be, you know, how well received is this among the crow? I imagine probably pretty well because she's a very sympathetic, even sort of heroic figure. But like, how accurately was the was her material translated? How much did he embellish it? Um, okay. And even if it's not uh, in a kind of pejorative or demeaning way, like you know, he could have embellished it in the other way, like maybe oh. made it more exciting than it actually was or something. I don't know. I just think it's a question you have to ask when you're dealing with the translation. Well, yeah. And, you know, we, we did do some, a little research on how he uh, was viewed by the natives and it seems like he was pretty highly respected. He also did the, the account of Plenty Coup's life. Um, and, and he was responsible for getting Rocky Boy's uh, reservation Exactly. So, yeah, seems to be a guy that was uh, put the time into getting to know the natives. He he actually lived with the Blackfeet and Salish tribes for a while as a trapper when he was a young man. So, right, and he was friends with Charlie Russell, and I'm pretty sure he was friends with Schultz. Also, I think they did a book together, maybe. Mm. So, one thing that was interesting to me about this the Pretty Shield book was, you know the the difference in culture it's so really striking how you know she like she's explaining the one chapter that really struck out stuck out for me was uh when he's asking her about her marriage and she talks about how you know she was in an arranged marriage she was 16 right. when she got married and <laughs> her older sister was already married to this guy right <laughs> And then her, later, her younger sister was married to him. So they, he had three wives, all sisters. And, um, you know, the, the, the way she tells the story is just so matter of fact. It's just the way it was for them. And I think that's, that's fascinating to me as far as, you know, how often the natives were depicted as savages or whatever. And probably a lot of that had to do with the fact that they just had a completely different view of how to go about the basic, uh, you know, day-to-day -day living than we than the than the Europeans that were coming out this way, right? Because I think the Europeans just took it for granted that you know, marriage between one man and one woman is yeah, like that's the default. But it's interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about um, you know the controversy over the Mormons in Utah. Yes, and you know when they practice polygamy, it's it's well illegal but yeah uh, i think a lot of white europeans look upon that with disdain mm -hmm. yeah so a lot of it was judgment you know just pure pure judgment as far as looking at these people and how like barbarians you know they're basically like <laughs> but for them it was uh you know i it was interesting to hear her talk about um like the rules of, uh, so she's she's talking about how the older sister, <laughs> she was sort of gossiping about you know, the older my older sister was not a good person. She she went with other men, right? And then she explained how she wasn't the one that was supposed to do something about that. Her brother was. So they even had rules about how to go about. 
um, confronting someone for infidelity. So her brother was the one that was supposed to do that. And well, and even for like talking to people like the, early right. in the book, doesn't she say something about how she has to get permission from somebody's sister-in-law to talk about something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, that while you're on this cultural difference thing, one of the things I noticed was throughout this, the animosity toward the Lakota. Oh like, yeah. You know, you know, because they're enemies. Right. Exactly. And so yeah. she keeps, I, I don't know, there was one pretty interesting scene where she was talking about being a little kid and they'd play some game and they lost their ball. They made a ball out of a stuffed right. animal skin or something. And then she yeah. was like, she was worried about going to get it because the Lakota were going to kill her. <laughs> right. Yeah. So basically what I, what I came away with was, they had a civilization. It was just different than ours, you know. It wasn't like they were uncivilized, you know, barbarians just wandering around. Uh, they had very strict rules about how to go about everything, uh, just like we do, you know. So it's, it's just interesting to look at it from that perspective, you know. So if you could connect that to the to the Melissa Kwasny book. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty multicultural book because she's going to all these different Right. Nations. Yes. And, and also talking to a lot of natives, like the whole scene in Alaska with the, yeah, all the different furs, you know, and. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the, the, the uh, mink farmer, each of these different groups of people, uh, you know, they rely on this stuff for, to make a living. And so they have their own set of, uh, more moral values and and uh, the way that they justify it it was interesting the scene in the in denmark where she was talking to the uh was it mink was that the mink farm yeah it was the mink farm and you know how they had to very carefully scrutinize when they could breed or when they had to put them in different cages and keep them with companions oh yeah and, and the guy he kind of had this ambivalent attitude about all the environmental regulation but one part of it at least was you know we care about the future of the industry whereas in the u.s you know you don't have any oversight or you don't care about it or you don't care what you're exploiting he didn't say that but it seemed like that was part of his tone implied yeah yeah she picked up on it right um, but at the same time he expressed some measure of frustration about all the environmental rules that they had to deal with like yeah well, and that was another interesting thing about her narrative was that in a lot of the these instances, she kind of had to establish herself as someone who wasn't there to to um, find out what they were doing wrong. Like, right, she had to read the writer. They all of them, a lot of them, assumed that she was there to expose some kind of you know wrongdoing or to present the. Um, you know, pet of you or something. Right. <laughs> she had to, she had to more than once say she wasn't with PETA, right? Yeah, exactly. PETA? I guess you say PETA. PETA, right. So she's there just trying to write a book about how they go about their business. And of course they're, they're wary. So yeah, it took some doing for her to establish herself as a, a legit person that was just simply interested in their, their lives. First of all, I did time, you can see I have 30 pages of um, notes at the end of the book um, of all the things that 
all the books I read, uh, but also we wanted, I wanted also it to be story-based in some, somehow. And so I did a lot of traveling and went to Japan, went to Mexico, went to um, Copenhagen and, and Denmark to a mink farm. Uh, yeah. things, that, things that took a lot of time and, um, and also things I wasn't outside my skill set, let's say. Um, I'm a poet. I spend most of my time by myself learning how to interview people, going into places like the International Fur Auction and talking to people way outside my usual day-to-day. So, uh, so, yeah, it was a lot of work. I'm, sometimes I think prose ruined me because <laughs> it's taking me a long time to get back um, to my voice. So did that eat up your advance too? <laughs> oh, <the> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As my Polish grandmother would say, better to dig ditches. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I was struck by with this book was how, um, you know, you kind of had to establish yourself when you went to s- talk to some of these people as someone who was genuinely interested in telling their story and not looking for, not looking to expose them as, you know, doing some kind of uh, nefarious things. So was that difficult too? That must've been challenging. Yeah. Um, And I want to back up a little and say, all that was good for me. It was good for me to, to learn those skills and to be out in the world. And also the people were a huge part of um, the benefits of writing this, just meeting people who had skill sets that were just ancient and knew knew so many things about the animal, but also about the you know the process of manufacturing. And yes, um, most people were very wary. Um, for instance, when I went to I went to see to a small slaughterhouse. Um, outside of Whitehall to see a cow be skinned. And when I was doing the chapter on leather and when I got there, the owner said to me, well, so how much do you know about leather making and, and um, this, this process? And I said, nothing. And he said, so why are they having you write this? And, um, and I laughed and, um, and I said, you know, I explained to him what the process was. And he ended up being such a wonderfully generous source of information. Yeah. Um, when the fur, of course, was the, um, the most resistant um, Copenhagen fur, which owns most of the, um, their, their uh, what do you call it? Um, their network of mink farmers. Um, probably 1,600 mink farms are under this umbrella, Copenhagen Fur. And, uh, but they run this international fur auction. And so I wrote them and asked them if I could attend. I mean, this is all, you know, you just take a chance, um, whatever crosses your path, kind of, because the information about this is so extensive that you could write a multi-volume encyclopedia about leather and fur and feathers and those kinds of things. So I wrote them and I said, I'm not an anti-fur person. And they said, yeah, that's what everyone says. And then they come in here with video cameras and they work for PETA or 
And this is all in the book. You, yeah, you yeah. talked about all that in the book. Right. And, um, and so, but they were amazing. They said, send us the leather chapter and we'll decide. So luckily I had, you know, the, I had those chapters finished. So I sent it to them and they, not, they sent me an invitation. When I got there, they said, you want to go uh, meet these mink farmers? <laughs> so they gave me a, a train ticket and they just sent me to these mink farmers on the North Sea and I spent, you know, four days with them. And uh, it's to their benefit, of course, um, to have good PR, but also to, to show their side of it. And I think that's true. That's what happened with Allied Feathers in LA when I went there to see their, um, their down operation. When I called, I had emailed them ahead of time. When I called, the owner called me back and said, yes, I'll give you a tour. And, um, and he explained, he was very transparent. He said, it's to our benefit for you to see our side of it. Um, we get so much bad press. And I have a follow-up to this also. Can I ask you, uh, I think it's in the chapter where you're in Alaska, but the same problem, like at the level of the question, you ask a woman a question, and it seemed like a perfectly logical question to me and to you, um, but you could see that she instantly put up a wall like she didn't want to respond. Could you right. talk about that? Was mm -hmm. that pretty common? Yeah, it's, it's because, of, um, because of how public and how strong the animal rights movement is and um and so people are wary they've lots of people have had you know video cameras coming in and um and being doctored actually right. yeah and um and so making where there's there's no nuance there's just right or wrong um also in the case of fur we saw how uh how the SEAL campaigns in the 70s shut down not only the industry, but shut down many native villages um, because, people, because people couldn't sell their SEAL skins anymore. In the case of native people, it's even more of that wariness because um, here in Montana, we see this, but also all over any indigenous community is used to being their their lives being appropriated getting nothing back from it um having being misrepresented so in the case of being in Kasiglik, um any of those native villages up there they were just like as soon as my friend said i was a writer everybody quit talking mm. yeah so it it felt to me as if you're you were genuinely open-minded about trying to find out how they pro go about the process. I mean, it didn't feel like you were converted from one side to the other. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how you, it's, it felt like you went, to, went into this with that idea that you would just find out exactly. And it, I also wanted to point out, it's kind of interesting that you chose the, uh, the Pretty Shield book because of course natives are known for being very respectful of the animals that they use mm -hmm. uh, for for their own purposes so um was that part of it too that you have this interest in the native culture um so yeah, absolutely um everything's so complicated you know that um that i learned that really quickly that 
that you can't say, I'm never going to wear anything that costs the life of an animal, right? But you're going to wear plastic shoes um, or it's very hard to avoid wearing, you know, yeah. um, not wearing wool, not wearing, people would say to me, oh, I don't, what do you mean animals? And they'd be standing there with this down coat on and not ever having thought about that being coming from an animal. So as I said, I was as naive as, as the average person about this. And so I would, um, I tried to go into it open-minded and the more I read, the more complex the issues were going, um, spending, you know, most of my life here in Montana, I have had the privilege of meeting lots of native people and, um, and learning different native cultures and their beliefs, reading a lot of native literature, my favorite literature, <laughs> by the way, um, and learning that it really is a different, for the most part, a different way of looking at life than the capitalist industrial <laughs> philosophy that we seem um, burdened with right now. And so, in other words, I think I've learned a lot um, from, from indigenous people. Um, they were actually, many of them guides through this whole thing because when I, when I started thinking, okay, how do we look at this in a healthy way? How do we make these kinds of decisions? They're the kinds of decisions that we see, um, the kind of thinking we see in ecological thinking. Mm. And when I think of um, biodiversity, I think of ecology, those, those concepts are very much mirrored in a lot of indigenous thinking. So um, Mandy, my um, co-poet laureate, yeah. was always, you know, always there. I had to actually change her name a few times in the book because, <laughs> but she was a guiding spirit um, because she would just look at me and go, roll her eyes and go, Melissa, you know, like that story I told you about. Um, oh, I said, oh, I'm, I want to take that class about, tanning tanning hides at um, SKKC and, and she'd say, Melissa, you have to kill the deer. <laughs> like you have to start you have to start at the first step. <laughs> and um, and so but also the idea of not wasting something, about not taking more than you need, that idea of reciprocity that that human beings can actually be reciprocal in what they take by taking care of the land that the um, the animals come from. Um, restraint, all those ideas, I think, are um, are in a lot of indigenous cultures. So, can I ask, as a result of doing this project, have you changed your behavior at all, or have you changed your philosophy of clothing? Very hard to buy something. Is it's it? very hard to buy something now. Um, I don't. I don't think I've bought a, a new article of clothing since I finished the book. <laughs> wow. Um, but but I do think about things. You know, I think about what I have in my closet. Like I say in the book, um, very early in the writing of it, I went through my closet and I just looked at what was there and looked at the labels and where they came from and what they were made of. And it's instructive. 
So what was your overall conclusion? Well, in the book, how I conclude the book, and, and it's, I have to say, it's a pleasure to talk to you too, because you've actually read it. Yeah. And <laughs> I had to do many interviews with um, different radio stations or th things like that, the podcasts, where people hadn't read the book. So I felt like I had to right. summarize what I really is, is a lot of information, right? Yeah. Um, but at the end, I say, um, I kind of steal Michael Pollan's ending to Omnivore's Dilemma and say, where he says, um, eat food, mostly plants, not very much. <laughs> and so at, at the end of this book, I say, um, wear clothes, mostly from plants and animals, not very many, and cherish them. And so that's one thing I think in this throwaway culture that we um, hopefully are growing out of um, is the idea that if you have something that you wear that you take care of it, that you maybe mend it. It used to be everyone mended their clothes. Now we throw it away because you can buy, you know, three t-shirts for $10 at Target and, um, and not, not bother with it. Um, clothes are cheap. And, and so that idea of not wasting things, of, of, of considering what you use, can be applied, I think, in lots of different ways. But thinking about what, what do we use and where do we get it? Um, you know, one thing that, and this is just a personal thing, I think, for me, is I've, I've never really cared about my clothes. I buy almost everything from, you know, secondhand store. And when I was traveling around the country a lot, when I was younger, I would, you know, frequently go to a conference or something in Boston and just get on the plane with nothing except my books, my book bag, and hit the, hit the thrift store the minute I got to town and buy whatever clothes I was going to wear and then just leave them somewhere. I have left so many suit coats in airports mm -hmm. and I just never really, you know, thought about it. But I think it's because I just have zero fashion sense. So I'm, I'm wondering how much of this connects to like, like, fashion and i guess what i'm really aiming at is when you say wear few clothes russell and i were talking before we talked to you i said one thing i was curious about is like you know maybe we should just not wear as much clothes as as we do like there's a lot kind of hard to do in montana <laughs> well I, I did say that but you know in the summertime it's hot mm -hmm. but you know it seems like there's more there's a whole subtext to clothing that has to do with like religion and you know all these yeah, weird cultural mores like you know yeah. women like men can go without a shirt but women can't i mean actually legally they can but they don't because it's you know culturally shunned or whatever well first of all i think you always look really fashionable <laughs> i am wearing wool right now i see that <laughs> um yeah, I think one thing that's interesting about the second-hand market, which which you probably know and a lot of people know, is that there's there is so much clothes that in so many clothes that end up in the second-hand market that America has been shipping huge 
amounts to Africa and and to um, India, where people don't even want want it. You know, yeah. I read an article where they're saying, "Stop sending us all these things. We would like to develop our own local economy, or you know, our clothing, right. um, making of clothes." And but that that idea of being so waste. I love your story about going somewhere without even bringing anything and just taking for chance that you're going to find exactly what's appropriate there. Um, I love secondhand stores. Most of my clothes are from secondhand stores also. Um, but then where, where are all those clothes coming from? People are, there are a lot of people who are thinking of it as a disposable commodity. I agree. And I guess what I was getting at is I think that there's a lot of people richer than us who do the same thing, but not at the secondhand store. They go to, you know, REI or Columbia, these high end, you know, when they go to a new place, when they go to Aspen, they just buy a new coat and then they donate it. And leave it. Right. Right. Exactly. So, and I wanted to add in case you didn't know this, but um, you know, because I do a lot of printing and I use a lot of rags, I can go to the thrift store and buy a, a black garbage sack full of white t-shirts for like $2 because uh-huh. they have so many of them. Right. Right. And when we think about what cotton, you know, how the impact that cotton has on the environment, you know, how much water is used for those things and how is it that they're so cheap? How right. is it that we can get those, those t-shirts from China and you get a spot on them and then you throw it away. Take it to the second hand. And that's something new. That's something, you know, that's our generation, my generation, your generation, a um, couple generations that that's happened. When, when I was young, I would go to the secondhand stores with my mother and there was hardly anything there. Mm. Now you can go there and you can find a, you know, Patagonia jacket. Right. And I remember my mom, you know, sewing patches on my jeans when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, endless patches. Right. I used to sew my own on. <laughs> um, so, Melissa, I was curious about why you chose uh, the Pretty Shield book as the mm-hmm. companion to this. Well, I was thinking about um, nonfiction, um, which is what you you asked me, yeah. a, a nonfiction book. And I thought about the ones that have had the most impact on me. And so um, the Pretty Shield book did the, also by the same author, the um, Plenty Coup yeah, right. book. Um, and then um, I've taught Black Elk Speaks um, when I taught Native Lit at Carroll. And, and I was thinking those books had a profound way um, impact on the way that I see the world, that I walk around the world. Um, I love Pretty Shield's story about the chickadee, as, as I think yeah, do, that, um, that the chickadee has, she, um, she says, the chickadee has seven tongues. And, uh, and the interviewer says, you know, really? You know, seven tongues in, yeah. <laughs> in its mouth? And she said, you don't know that? And, and I always think um, that kind of level of attention, um, because I love I love the chickadee, but it does have seven songs for sure, maybe even more, and maybe that's what she means. Um, but I love that idea of seeing seeing the world with that kind of att- the natural with with that kind of attentiveness, and also with that 
much um, curiosity. Um, can I ask a question, Russell, and I didn't know the answer to this really off the top of our heads, but is Linderman pretty well respected by natives? Like he, he was pretty honest in his accounts. Like when you mentioned Black Elk, Nyhart, I think gets a lot of criticism because he embellished yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah, and, um, and I think Nyhart gets most of the criticism. There's a, there's a scholarly edition of Black Elk Speaks um, that, that has annotations by a native scholar. Oh, good. And, um, and it's, it's really illustrates how much Nyhart put the whole vision into something that would be palatable to white people or understandable to white people. Um, it, it was a, he sold it, in other words. Right. And I think, you know, that's what I mean about appropriation, why people don't want to talk to you um, because you're going to use it for your own benefit or um, something. But I also think that that book has really changed a lot of people's ideas about um, how to be in the world. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't hear so much about Lindemann. No, we didn't either. I just yeah. wondered if you knew. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always liked that he was a poet. And so <laughs> maybe took fewer liberties, mostly was listening. So you said you're having trouble getting back into poetry. Are you, are you, uh, are you getting back into poetry? I am. I am. It's been um, a couple years since I finished the book. Oh, okay. So, um, so yes. And, and so I certainly don't want to take another project on. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have a book coming out soon that we can talk about? I don't. Oh, okay. No. no. I, I had mid, in the middle of writing this book, I, um, I, I did have a book of poetry come out because I was, again, an odd thing for a poet. I was asked um, by Linda Beard's, who edits the um, Pacific Northwest Poets series, if I had something, I, I published with Milkweed, but um, if I had something in the drawer extra that they could ah. do, which is, I know, who, I went, is this really me? Is this really happening to me? <laughs> Hasn't happened since. Um, but, um, you haven't gotten any calls for t with $25,000 advances. <laughs> well, after, after this podcast, they'll be beating down your door. <laughs> Right. And, um, but that book, Where Outside the Body is the Soul Today, um, came out in 2017. Mm. So um, just kind of in the middle of the writing of um, putting on the dog. So right now I'm working on another book. So how has the Poet Laureate experience been uh, in the year of the pandemic? Have you had still been able to do some events? We we started out really strong, um, and then March everything got canceled. Yeah. Um, we we did a lot of things. We were going around to different um, small communities, doing readings. Um, we got to come to your town, Russell, and um, yeah. and dance salsa to salsa music with Joy Harjo when she came and did that mm -hmm. fabulous reading, um, and. We, we spoke at the Women's March in January and Helena, we, we read together. Um, I just have to say, working with Mandy has been, as always, um, we, we frequently collaborate and um, this has been really good. Um, 
but since then we've been mostly doing things that involve what we're doing now um some kind of recording or something we did a wonderful um really exciting collaboration with the missoula museum of art um, they have a collection called um well their collection is contemporary um american indian artists and they have one of the biggest collection of that sort in the northwest um, so they they have a project they call love letters to the collection and they ask if a few people they would come over there and look through it and pick one piece and write something mm. to it and that was just before the close down the shutdown so mandy and i went over there and we selected a work by um, molly murphy adams a, um, a beaded map of it's it's a it it takes a forest service map of of missoula of the missoula area and the um flathead reservation mm. and then she beads um the circles where women have gone missing um, oh. or been murdered uh -huh. in that area and and it's shocking to see how many circles oh, are there but also other things that she beads on it so mandy and i um both wrote poems to that piece and then um recently uh i went over to missoula and they they made a video of myself reading and Mandy reading and then um, Heather Cahoon and um, Chris Latre. So that video is now available. You got anything else, Aaron? No, just this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. So this has been fabulous. So one of the things that I, I really liked about the um, Pretty Shield book is uh, and this is something i've noticed before in a lot of native um, narratives is they talk so much more about their feelings <laughs> have you noticed that um interesting off the top of my head i would think it's less cerebral and less uh analytical of feelings but they yeah it does seem like they you know anger or yeah yeah sadness they they express their sadness very openly yeah it's just something i've always like even in when i'm reading history historical accounts i'm always fascinated by you know they'll have these meetings between the chiefs and the cavalry or whoever some yeah. some leader and the the native will start with uh talking about how it's they have a lot of sadness in their heart about right. what's happening. And Absolutely. You don't, you don't hear that from Custer, right? No, that's yeah, that is true. I guess, you know, part of it is to, just the historical reality of their being overrun and Well, yeah, I mean it it's true they were they were experiencing more of that, but I just think they were more in touch with that. Um, um you know, there's a great I used to use this a lot in classes. It's in the it's in the big uh last best place anthology ah mm -hmm. and it's a it's a meeting between um it's a meeting between i want to say chief charlot and some other chiefs in the flathead mm. with the railroad company because they want to build a railroad across the reservation and just the disconnect between what the indians are saying like they said how much money you know the white people say how much money do you want 
for a railroad to go across the right how much can we pay you for this yeah and he says well i don't really want you to build it because this is the land of my fathers and you know this is where our children play and all the animals are here and so forth and the the whites keep insisting well surely you can put a number on it so that we can get this railroad through and it'll be good for you guys too mm. and just the disconnect between they're just talking past each other and finally yeah. one of the chiefs says well i want 10 million dollars <laughs> and then, and then finally at that point the white people are like that's ridiculous it's not worth that much mm. and then you realize you know and you it's only three or four pages in that anthology but you realize that their two worldviews are just totally incommensurable. Like they right. just, and yeah. it would be interesting to go back and read that and see if it has a lot of different emotional language in it, like you're saying. Oh. Sure it does, because, you know, he's obviously very sad and distraught. Yeah. And another thing I was thinking about was how important it was that Linderman and a few other people um, did, did take the time to make these records. You know, another one that we talked about earlier was Grinnell um, who took the time to record some of the history of these native people because they weren't doing it themselves, you know, not, not in a written form. So right. it's, it's really great that we have this, these resources available. No, I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent. And I only asked the question about Linderman because frankly, I, I don't know much about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I knew the stuff about Nyhart, so I wondered if he was what natives think of him. Right. Whereas I don't, I don't think Melissa quite put it this way, but I think of the Black Elk Speaks book as very definitely a book about Indians written by a white people or a white guy for white people, which right. is also necessary. But but this one, the Pretty Seal book, feels much more like a. It's more organic. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a good word for it. So thanks for joining us. Uh, for next time, we're going to talk to um, an old friend of ours, Tammy Holland, who's a former poet laureate. And we don't know who we're going to pair her with, but we'll figure that out. She will tell us who she she yeah. to read. <laughs> We'd like to thank our sponsor, Isle of Books in Bozeman, Montana. Please visit their website at isleofbookshop.com. And we'd like to thank Medley Antonioli and Susan Roston for their support, the owners of Isle of Books.